So to very briefly catch you up, and those of you who've already forgotten, which I can't imagine that that is anyone, but Paul is writing Romans. One of his big objectives is to unite two distinct groups of Christians, Jewish Christians, Gentile Christians. So Jewish Christians are Christians who have a long heritage and history of being God's chosen people. They have all the religious traditions, all the laws. Gentile Christians are new to the fold. They don't have that whole heritage. They are brought in by grace. They're two very different types of people. Paul wants to unite them. That's why he's writing this letter, one of the reasons. Then last week we talked about one of his goals was to inspire their faith, encourage their faith. And then at the very end, we left on this kind of a cliffhanger verse on verse 15. When he revealed that his whole strategy to do all of this stuff he wanted to do, unite them, bring about their faith, all of that hinged on one activity, and it was in verse 15. He says, so for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. All these plans that he's hoping to accomplish, and his method is simply preaching the gospel to them. These people who are already Christians, preaching the gospel to them. Not to go and form a committee, a committee for church unity and faith revitalization. No, he's just coming to preach the gospel to them. He's not coming with a program of, like a small group program, like we launched House to House. He's not coming with that. He's coming simply to preach the gospel to them. Preach the gospel to the Christians. That kind of baffles me. I hope it kind of baffles you. But we're going to find out today why this is the center point of his ministry. And the big point I want you to keep in mind from the last two weeks for this message is that the gospel is the bold centerpiece of, of Paul's ministry. Boldly, he relies on the preaching of the gospel to accomplish everything he's hoping to do. And I'm going to argue that that should and must be the centerpiece of our ministry here. So that's the sermon in a nutshell, but you have to stay for the rest of it. So, he wanted to unite them. How? With the gospel. He wanted to encourage their faith. How? With the gospel. So why? Why does Paul put so much emphasis on the gospel? The gospel that Jesus Christ came. He lived the life we failed to live. He died the death that we deserve. Those who will believe and put their faith and trust in him can be delivered from sins, the guilt of it, the condemnation of it, the the slavery to sin, the filth of it. That's the gospel, and he hinges all his hopes on that. Why? Well, that's where we come to our famous verse. Has anyone in here memorized this verse before? We're not going to think you're showing off. Yeah, a couple people. It's a very famous passage. Let's read it again. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Have you heard that, that verse before? Are you are y'all wearing the glasses that have like the eyes on there where it looks like you're looking at me, but actually you're kind of dozing off? Everybody just raise your hand just to, just to get... Yes, okay. Yes. Yes, now it looks like I'm talking to people. Good. So why does he make this the centerpiece of his ministry, 
The very first part of our passage today explains it clearly. What does the first part of it say? For I am not ashamed of the gospel. In verse 15, he says, So for my part, all I'm going to do, I'm going to come preach the gospel to you for or because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. That word ashamed, in the original language, it carries with it the idea of the type of confidence that makes you unafraid of being exposed as a fool. What he's saying is, I'm not afraid that I'm going to publicly be humiliated because I'm putting so much confidence in the gospel. I'm not worried about that. I'm not ashamed. I'm not afraid that I'm going to spend years and years building a ministry around the gospel, and then it's going to turn out that it was all a lie, and I was wrong the whole time. He is not afraid of that. He is unashamed. Therefore, he's building his entire life, his entire ministry around the gospel. So right here already is a spot for us to pause and ask ourselves, are we ashamed of the gospel? Am I ashamed of the gospel? Are you ashamed of the gospel? Are you so confident in it that you would boldly build your entire life around it without fear that one day it might be exposed as a myth or foolishness or trickery? The fact that Paul was unashamed caused him to build everything around the gospel. So what is your life built around? What is my life built around? What is our church built around? If it's not the gospel, maybe we are, to some degree, ashamed of the gospel. To help us think about it, I want you to imagine that you're sitting in a classroom at UNC Chapel Hill. And it's the first day of class, and your professor is Bart Ehrman. Meredith had... Bart Ehrman for one class. What was the class? Old Testament survey. Okay. So it was a Bible class. Old Testament survey with Professor Bart Ehrman. Has anyone heard of Bart Ehrman? Okay. One person. So this is a really relevant illustration. Well, Bart Ehrman, when he was a teenager, I'm I'm thinking, I'm, I'm paraphrasing his life story. If I get a few facts wrong, forgive me. But generally, I'm right. When he was a teenager, he was saved. Became a Christian. He's a very smart man. And eventually, somehow through his readings, I don't know the whole story, but somehow he came to think, this book isn't as reliable as we think it is. You know, this isn't the original language that we read. This wasn't originally written in English. It was originally written a long, long time ago in different languages and then translated to what we have here. So somehow through his studies, he came to the position that this is unreliable. He wrote a book called Misquoting Jesus, to where he argues historically and about textual criticism that, that what we have that supposedly Jesus said can't be true. It's not reliable. So he turned away from his faith. He didn't want to. He did not want to let go of his Christian faith. But he did because he thought it unreliable due to textual criticism. It's a a field of study. So now he teaches at UNC, and I don't know how aggressive he is about it, but very, okay, so let's just say you're sitting in his class. You've decided you're going to go back to school, and UNC just opens the doors wide open to you because you're such a scholar, 
and, and your transcripts look so great from way back when, and you're sitting in class, and he is just going off on why Jesus cannot be the Messiah, why the Bible is not reliable, why this gospel is an embarrassment. And you'd be a fool to believe it, much less build your life around it. This is an educated man who has spent years studying it and has debated people far smarter than you. Would you stand up for the gospel in that class? If he said, who in here is one of these fools? Who in here is a Christian? Would you raise your hand? Would I raise my hand? Or does some part of us feel a little bit of shame? Feel a little bit ashamed of this gospel? Well, Paul would have risen his hand. And the question I want us to think about is why? What makes him so certain, so confident? And the text tells us. It says, I'm going I'm to preach the gospel. I'm going to build my ministry around that because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For, or because, it is the power of God. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Paul was not ashamed of the gospel, not because logically it makes the most sense, not because historically we have the records to prove it. I do believe both of those things. But that was not why he was unashamed. Why was he unashamed? Actually, you can answer me. What made Paul so confident? Let's look for one word, and it starts with a P, and it ends with an hour. Power, thank you. Yes. Paul was unashamed, not because he thought he could out-argue Professor Ehrman, but because it is the power of God to save people. Yes, it's historically reliable. Yes, it makes logical sense when you think about it. But mainly, this gospel is powerful. This gospel changes people. Remember, Paul was changed from Saul to Paul when God saved him through the gospel. He was a murderer of Christians who hated Jesus. The gospel transformed him into Paul, who basically built the early church with the gospel. So if you find yourself in Professor Ehrman's class one day, and you're, you're in that position with anybody... You can be unashamed about the gospel, even if you don't have all the answers. Even if you haven't spent years and years and years studying textual criticism. If your life has been transformed by the gospel, you can be unashamed and confident. And I'm not just talking because it's experiential. I'm talking because it truly, powerfully saves people and changes people. Now, what makes it so powerful? I'm not even going to address right now where you are with that. That's a whole other sermon. If you really have experienced the power of the gospel. But first, let's just figure out what makes it so powerful to begin with. Because that's where Paul goes in the passage. So, the train of thought. I'm going to come to you. My whole ministry is going to be built around the gospel. Because I'm not ashamed of it. Because it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first 
and also to the Greek, for, or because, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. So it's powerful to save those who believe. Why? What makes it so powerful? Because it's a really compelling lifestyle presentation of your life could be like this? What does the power of the gospel do, according to verse 17? Just replace the word for with because. Because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. See, the power that the gospel has over people is that it reveals something to them. It uncovers something. It brings something to light that otherwise was in the darkness and unknown and unrealized. And that something is the righteousness of God. Everybody following the train of thought of the passage with me? So basically what that means is, in our natural state, we don't know anything about the righteousness of God. We don't care anything about the righteousness of God. We're oblivious to the righteousness of God in our natural state. Left alone, without the gospel, we do not realize how righteous God is. So, that works itself out. When we think about our righteousness, or if we're good people, how do we determine? How do you determine if you're a good person or not? Well, you look around at the people around you. You look around at all these other folks. Or you look at the news, and you're like, well, I'm not Omar Gaddafi. I'm not uh, Charlie Sheen. So I'm doing pretty good. I'm not Osama bin Laden. Or you look in the history books, I'm not... Hitler, I'm no Hitler. I heard a comedian talking about that once, and she was so right. Why does that? Why is that any claim to goodness? I'm no Hitler. Well, whoop de doo. You're no Hitler. Gold ribbon for you. How do you determine if you're good or not? You look around and you compare to other people, or maybe you're not thinking about the news. Maybe it's just, well, I don't have her attitude. I'm glad I'm not like her, or. I'm glad I don't have his temper. I'm doing pretty good because I'm not, I'm not a drunkard like that guy or whatever it may be. We look to other people to determine our righteousness. And so we especially, talking about us and just our middle class generally lifestyle, Bible belt, generally pretty moral culture, Most people around here feel pretty all right about themselves and their righteousness. And so what you get thinking this way, comparing this way, is a scale. You think of righteousness in terms of a scale. Let's say you're looking at me this way, so we'll put on this side you have Hitler, and you have murderers, and you have rapists, pedophiles, the worst people you can think of is on this side of the scale. And then on this side of the scale you have God and Jesus. And then maybe right here you have like Mother Teresa. And then somewhere on the scale down here, I don't want to bash in Charlie Sheen. I don't really know anything about him. I just know he's in the headlines a lot. Charlie's over here. So where do you put yourself on that? Maybe you're here somewhere. Maybe probably most of you think you're kind of in the middle. You know, no, I'm not Mother Teresa, but... 
I'm no Hitler. I hope no boy ever asked to marry my daughter and his, his, his pitch is, yeah, I'm no Hitler. That's not going to cut it. So we compare to each other and we put ourselves on a scale. And each of you probably has a different idea of where the line is drawn between who is good enough to get to heaven. Where's the line drawn? Next time you're talking to somebody who, if you're trying to share the gospel with someone and they do give you the, I mean, no, I don't go to church, I don't love Jesus, I haven't asked for forgiveness, and I don't care about God or whatever, but I'm no Hitler. And you'll say, ask them, well, where is the line? How good is good enough to go to heaven and be with God for eternity? Most people, as I've talked to people, it's murder is kind of the cutoff. I put murder down here. So that means anybody from here over can just waltz right into heaven, high-five God, and be okay? See, what the gospel reveals is a righteousness altogether different than anything we know. It's the righteousness of God. And when you see the righteousness of God, your unrighteousness becomes plain. And it becomes obvious that there's not a scale. There's two options, righteous or unrighteous. There is no scale. There is righteous like God is righteous, or there's unrighteousness. The Bible makes that very plain. I've got a verse to prove it to you. Isaiah 64, 6. The prophet wrote this. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. We, we all are like one who is unclean. All of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. See, when you see through the gospel, God's righteousness, it becomes clear that, man, even the righteous stuff that I do is like a polluted garment. Polluted garment there, that is strong language. Stronger language than I would use up here. But I'll tell you what it means so you'll know. When we compare ourselves to God's righteousness, even the the stuff that we think is so righteous about ourselves becomes like what he translates as a polluted garment, which really means the putrid, filthy, embarrassing rags used back then during menstruation. It's not something to be prized, displayed, bragged about. It's something to be done away with. Just don't even want to look at it. When you compare your righteousness and my righteousness with God, we've got nothing to be bragging about. None of us is going to show up, stand before God in the end and say, I was a good person. We're going to be on our faces saying, oh, please have mercy on me. I see now. How unrighteous I am. Even our church involvement, our generosity with the needy, our quiet times, our acts of kindness. These aren't great things to be presenting as, I'm good, I'm righteous like you are, God. Look at what I do. Not compared to God's righteousness. So in terms of righteousness, there is no scale. There is God. 
There is us. There is righteous. There is unrighteous. A lot of people don't like that. But I believe this is God's word and I believe it's true. So there it is. I'm just giving it out there to you. And I've been, I've been thinking about this and I have the perfect illustration. If I don't say so myself. And of course it has to do with my kids. On Tuesdays I stay home with my kids. I feed them their meals and everything. Now, in our kitchen, the lighting is okay, but after they eat and they have spread their jelly from their jelly sandwich all over, they've like a Head and Shoulders commercial, got it in their hair and filthy with their food, and I'll get a wet paper towel and just wipe them off, and they hate it, and they're smacking me, and they're yelling about it. And I think I've got them pretty clean. And then it's time to, I don't know, take Elias to preschool or something. And I'll, I'll take him outside. And let's just say I'm carrying Lillian. I think I've got her face clean. But when I walk outside and that sun hits her and I look at her, it's obvious when the light hits her face that I haven't got her anywhere near clean. There's stuff all over her. She's got breadcrumbs like sprinkling out of her ears. That's kind of the way the gospel is. You don't probably know a lot of people that think that they're unrighteous. Most of us think that we're pretty good people. And what the gospel does is it shines the light of God's righteousness on us, and we see ourselves for what we really are. And that, in that revelation is the power of God to save people. And therefore, we build our lives and our ministry around that. It's central to the ministry because, let's just say if we didn't, if we did church without the gospel, we could probably do okay in terms of attendance and activity and maybe even a general feeling of well-being because we'd all be doing seemingly good stuff together. You know, there's a way to draw a crowd. There's a way to keep up a good uh, calendar of activities and programs to keep a group of people going together towards stuff. But if you leave the gospel out of that, what do you get? You get a bunch of people that think they're good people and never see all the food all over their faces. Does that make sense? Is that... So we must, like Paul, make the gospel the beginning, the center point of everything we do. Because as he explains in here, that creates faith. Ministry without gospel creates pride, as I'm going to show you in a second. Gospel ministry creates faith, and they're two very different things. But that's what he says. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. If you're wondering what that means... Look at your house-to-house insert. That's one of the questions, and there's some scripture there there to figure it out. I don't have time to go into it today. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And then he has this kind of confusing phrase, from faith to faith. And then he goes on, as it's written, as though he's still trying to clarify what he means, the righteous man shall live by faith. You see how it's in all caps there? In your Bible, some of them might have it in all caps. That means it's a quote from the Old Testament. 
He's quoting from an Old Testament book called Habakkuk. Habakkuk, what is it? Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. And I got it here, so you don't have to flip there, but you can look at it later if you want. That verse says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. I know that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But Habakkuk was a prophet, and he was talking to God's people. And he was explaining to God's people, God's not happy with you. And in this verse, he's explaining why. God's not happy with you because you're puffed up. Puffed up is biblical speak for prideful. You're full of yourself. And then he contrasts that with, but the righteous man lives by faith. So he's saying, you guys are all puffed up. You're so full of yourself. You do all your religious stuff. You think you're good, but you're not righteous. The righteous man, in contrast to that, lives by faith. Gospel ministry produces people who are righteous through Christ, who are living by faith. This kind of ministry produces humility, produces genuineness, produces a a certain freedom. Ministry without gospel produces puffed up, prodful people that think they're good. It produces hypocrisy, produces legalism, produces a judgmental atmosphere. Now, how many of you have tried to talk to people about church or the gospel, or you're saying you should come to church, and you've had someone say, I don't know, man, I, I've gone to church before, and it's just a bunch of hypocrites. Has anybody ever heard that? Reasoning for not going to church. Has anybody ever felt that yourself? You don't have to say. Can you point out who it is that you're thinking about here in the congregation? <laughs> I've heard that quite a bit. You know, I'd go to church, but I know these people that go to church, and I see them outside of church, and they're just a bunch of hypocrites. They go to church, and they wear their suits, and they act all holy and nice. And then they walk out the doors, and they put on their street clothes, and they're cussing in there. Smoking, you know, those aren't like the worst sins I can think of, but you know what I mean. They're, you know, people contrast the church personality with the real life personality, and they deem us Christians altogether as a bunch of hypocrites. Well, they're not altogether wrong. They're really not. I had a conversation with a guy recently, and I just had to say, you know, I mean, that does happen. You do have people who act one way here and act another way there. Now, this same person had this misconception that I don't want to go to church because I don't want to have to act like I'm good. I know I'm not good. I know what I'm going to do Sunday night after I leave. And I don't want to go Sunday morning and act all righteous. So he was thinking, you've got to become righteous and then come to church. But see, that has nothing to do with the gospel. That's the opposite of the gospel. The gospel is, no, You are unrighteous, so come, join the rest of us unrighteous people. Come with me, and we'll seek Jesus, and he will give us his righteousness. It's a hard thing for people to grasp, and not everybody will. Paul says that too. He says, it's the power of salvation, it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Not everybody's going to believe, but to those who do, it will change their lives and their hearts completely. It's such an important misconception to correct. If the scale is valid, 
If we could just, through our determination and self-discipline, work our way up the scale. Past Charlie Sheen, work our way up to Mother Teresa's status. If we could just work our way up the scale, why did Jesus ever have to come here? Why did he ever have to come here and die brutally? If, if we're good people, why in the world did we need Jesus? It makes no sense. No sense whatsoever. Why would Jesus have to come and die a brutal death for us if we're capable of just being good? Paul says this in another passage really well about himself. You know, Paul was really... If you were going to put Paul on this scale after he became a Christian, you'd put him up here. And here's what he says about his righteousness. In Philippians chapter 3, he says, I myself have, have reason... For confidence in the flesh, confidence that I and my flesh and myself can be good. If anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, that was a Jewish thing, it was a religious thing that they had to do. I was of the people of Israel, God's chosen people, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. That's like saying, I'm a a Christian of Christians. As to the law, I was a Pharisee, which means he was an expert in this book. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. He's talking about he really had a heart to try to serve God. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, whatever I had because of all that righteousness, I counted it as a loss for the sake of Christ. I just want to get rid of all that stuff if I could get Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them all as rubbish. That's another strong word that I will not translate literally. Because I like my job. But that is a strong word. He counts all that stuff as rubbish. It sounds comical to say rubbish. This is not a comical word. He counts all that stuff as just filthy. as something you'd step in in your yard and cuss out your neighbor's dog because of it. I count it all as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's what we want. We don't want a club of do-gooders. We want a church of people changed and saved and made righteous through Jesus Christ. So, my big point, Paul made the gospel the centerpiece of his ministry, and so, so must we. You and I. I don't mean Doolin's Grove, the institution. I mean us. We people here. And man, I just think of what we could see happen and what we will see happen. Because I feel like we we are moving this direction. I cannot wait for stories to come flooding in, for testimony time every Sunday morning because we have so many people that just want to say how God has changed their lives through the gospel. Cannot wait for that. What does this mean for us? It means that your your person you're thinking about, most of you probably have somebody in your mind that you're thinking they need, I need to be talking to them about Jesus. This is a reminder that they don't just need your friendship, they need the gospel. Somehow, people need to hear the gospel. Because that is the power of God to salvation. 
Now, I want to leave you with a testimony that I heard recently. And uh, I looked it back up, and I forgot to write down what website I found it on, so I'm not going to properly uh, give credit for this little article. Um, it was some Christian music website. Um, I want to read this testimony to you of the power of the gospel in action. Okay, and I'll ask Tom to put up this guy's picture. It's kind of hard to see, but you can kind of see him. That guy, his name is Brian Welch. Nickname was Head, Brian Head Welch. He was a big part of the band Corn. Anybody ever heard of the band Corn? Okay. Anybody listen to Corn on the way over here this morning? Probably not. You'd feel guilty walking in here having just listened to that. They were really, I say were because I don't think they're still banned. I might be wrong. Maybe they are. But heavy, metal, intense, dark lyrics. And they were huge. I think around the time I was in high school, they were big. Now, Brian Welch was a big part of them. He may have been their lead guitarist, I think. I want to read to you a little story, his story here. Now, as Korn's popularity grew, the partying and mayhem intensified. Sometimes when Welch and his wife Rebecca were together, they were physically abusive toward each other. When she became pregnant, they married shortly after. That was in March of 1998. Despite several attempts to free himself from his drug addiction, nothing, not even the birth of his daughter, Jenea, could spur him to quit for good. As the pressures of the business increased, his addiction worsened. And I'm sure the pressures of the band were huge because, I mean, they were getting really, really big. Despite playing Woodstock 99, the biggest show of the band's career, Welch soon after got into a fight with his wife after the concert and punched her in the face. This is the kind of man... Brian Welch was. His wife, Rebecca, left him in 2000, falling into a new crowd of drug addicts. As it turns out, she was having an affair with a known skinhead and felon. When she failed to attend the court date concerning Jenea, Welch gained full custody. He gained full custody of his daughter. He says, But instead of getting my life together, I got stressed out and started drinking and partying even more. So in 2003 and 4, I got hooked on methamphetamines massively. I snorted lines every day just to get up. It was like breakfast to me. By 2004, Welch was deeply depressed, suicidal, and addicted, fantasizing what a relief it would be if he just could overdose. So my life was crumbling, he says. I needed to get off drugs. I tried a couple of rehabs, but that didn't work. Then one day, he heard his then five-year-old daughter, Jenea. That's about a year older than Elias. He heard his five-year-old daughter, Jenea, singing one of his corn songs about sex. Welch knew at that point that he had to leave the multi-platinum band and raise his daughter right. So, this is where it gets good. Reaching out to a Christian friend in an email, Welch hinted how unhappy he was. He just hinted at it in an email to a Christian friend. Days later, this friend wrote back saying that Welch came to his mind... After reading Matthew eleven twenty eight that morning, you guys know what Matthew 28, uh, 11, 28 is? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, I will give you rest. So he emails this friend, I think from hearing his testimony, this was someone else in the recording industry who is a Christian, and just hinted in an email that I'm just unhappy. A couple days later, the friend emails back and says, hey, I was reading my Bible, read Matthew eleven twenty eight. just made me think of you. Here's what it says. That's it. It says, this verse 
touched something deep inside Welch, and a lifetime of pain came pouring out. He told his friend he was a lost soul. He recalled asking Jesus into his heart as a child, remembering a presence of peace and love that had embraced him in his youth, but all that had been so long gone. It was while contemplating whether or not Jesus was really the answer that all these supernatural occurrences started, or coincidences started occurring. Welch began bumping into old friends who had since accepted Christ in their lives. And a neighbor whose daughter was friends with Janaea started to ask if he wanted to go to church. Even Janaea began asking questions about God and Jesus, having occasionally gone to a Catholic church with Welch's aunt. And Matthew eleven twenty eight started popping up all over the place, in emails, on signs, on store windows. Later that year, while still doing drugs one morning, Welch felt an enormous pain in his chest and couldn't breathe. It wasn't a heart attack, but it was enough to get him to start thinking a little more seriously about all this Jesus stuff. He says, so I decided to go to church. The pastor was talking about Jesus, how he was real, and all you needed to do was talk to him and he'd deliver you. So that's what I did. I went home and I said, Jesus, if you're real, take this stuff away from me. Make me a good person again. Take away my suicidal thoughts. Help me to want to live again. Days after that prayer, Welch felt enough resolve to finally give up his drug addictions. He says, the thing that tripped me out the most was I didn't have those depressing thoughts like I did before. God was really doing something awesome inside of me. He left Janae in the care of his parents. He checked into a hotel for a week just so he could sleep and eat and pray. He says, remarkably, the drug withdrawal symptoms went by relatively quickly. Within a couple of weeks, he was off drugs and feeling good, which is unheard of when you're addicted to speed. It wasn't just drugs he said goodbye to either. Welsh decided to leave corn in the midst of a multi-million dollar contract negotiation. No one does that. If you're part of a band that actually makes it, you don't just leave. There's probably guys all over the place in their garages right now trying to get a band together, hoping they can do something awesome. People weeping in the line of American Idol, hoping that they can be the one that makes it. He made it. But when the righteousness of God was revealed to him, he just it changed everything about him. He says, little did I know that God was also delivering me from an addiction to money. I had been filled with anger, confusion, hate, selfishness, greed, you name it. When God revealed himself to me, it was a supernatural peace and love that was so far higher and beyond anything you can experience on earth. I knew it was God. I knew it was him revealing heaven to me, eternal life. He poured out his love into my heart, and I was instantly changed in that moment. I mean, God became so real to me. He's irresistible. Isn't that an awesome testimony? Now trace that back. What super spectacular ministry reached him? Did y'all catch what reached him? It was an email from a Christian who said, hey, this verse made me think of you, and he gave him a verse of scripture, which was part of the gospel. And that... That, when, next time you're at your computer and you're typing an email, just think. That one time, back in 2004, God worked through someone's fingertips through an email to completely deliver this man. 
from sin and eternal death. Not because that email was so eloquent. Just because the gospel is the power of God to salvation to those who believe. Man, let's build our whole lives around that. Let's not be ashamed. May we not be ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to salvation. Let's pray.